You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Ooh, we got a Tuesday show for you. We have a lot to get to. My Bears have a new GM. Obviously, that's the biggest news of the day. Duh. I'll react to that. We'll get into some of that. Also, there may or may not be some baseball news, some stuff to talk about in the NBA, and a longtime football coach stepping away. But don't say retire. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. We're going to get to all of it. But we got to start very quickly with Sean Payton, Fitz. This wasn't that shocking. A lot of people saw this coming. There was a lot of hemming and hawing when they were asked about his future with the Saints. But now, former Saints head coach, despite having a couple more years on his contract, he explained today in a lengthy presser, which he earned every minute of, what some might have called a filibuster had there been something that he was delaying after the 90 minutes of him talking. He explained why he's stepping away now. Every year you go to training camp, and the one unique thing about our job is it's entirely different than your summer. And I don't know if, if it was a year earlier, maybe, depending on when Drew retired. It, look, he and I never discussed when his last game would be or when I'd be finished. I just felt like this season, wasn't, it was challenging for everyone. But man, I felt like it was time. I felt like it was time you know, I kind of knew maybe heading into training camp this might, but you don't, you, you, you know, you don't share that with anyone. You think, well, let's see how the season goes and we're working hard. And, and I felt the time was right for me. I felt the time was right. And it's something that I, I, I've been thinking about. Fitz, the, the thing that made the most news from that presser was that he very clearly said, I would not be using the word retirement. And I think coaching again, is in my future. And that has a lot of people talking about the Cowboys and other places that he might show up uh, down the road. Yeah, but there'll be a gap for anyone that uh, doesn't isn't aware because he had so much contract left in front of him. He has three years left on the deal, and some say he is walking away from upwards of $45 million. So you're talking about a ton of money. If he were to go anywhere right now, whatever team signs him would have to compensate New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It gets very complicated. The most likely scenario is that he sits out for a year and then figures out what's next, and even that could require some compensation. So there's no sure. easy next landing spot for Sean Payton. But if you're the Saints, you are suddenly looking at – I mean, it was two years ago you thought everything was going to at least be fine for a minute. You thought you might have your next quarterback in the building. Now Sean Payton rewarded Taysom Hill with a, a handy contract, and at this point they don't really know what they've got moving forward. Like, this is a difficult time to be a Saints fan. Yeah, it is. And we'll get into what's next for the Saints and some more from Sean Payton a little bit later in the show. But just before we began here on Spain and Fitz, the news from the Baseball Hall of Fame that David Ortiz is in 77.9% of the vote for Big Poppy and nobody else. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, not chosen in their 10th and final year on the writer's ballot. They will be on the today's game ballot in December expected to be voted on by a separate group there bonds at 66% Clemens 65.2 Schilling 58.6 uh Fitz when Jeff Passan did ESPN daily with Pablo he predicted all of this Ortiz would be in bonds and Clemens would be out and he described this particular vote with the last year of these guys on the ballot as a meteor we've been watching approach for years This has been the asteroid coming for the Hall of Fame (laughs) that we saw 15 years ago. Yes. And today it's going to hit 
And what we're going to be left with is arguably the greatest hitter of all time, arguably one of the five greatest pitchers of all time, not being in the place that honors baseball history. And I want to urge everyone to listen to the full conversation because Fitz, you and I have talked about this and a lot of people have talked about this ad nauseum and I wouldn't blame people for being sort of tired of the debates about Cooperstown and who's in and who's out and how people vote. But I will say that this really, really nuanced conversation between Jeff and Pablo acknowledged some of the language that affords the voters to say this is an issue of character and I don't think this person belongs, while also acknowledging that the hall is littered with folks who have been accused of very serious crimes, who probably share the very gross and offensive opinions of someone like Schilling, and certainly plenty who have taken substance-enhancing drugs, certainly plenty who have tested positive even, and Ortiz himself, regardless of whether you argue a false positive or that technically he still denies it, it is very difficult to honestly say that by leaving Bonds and Clemens out of a museum about baseball, you've done right in telling the story about baseball while simultaneously saying, but Ortiz, eh, we like him, so he's okay. Uh, part of the problem here is the finality of it. You mentioned it's the last year they're eligible through the traditional voting process. And, and one thing I think most fans expect is that while there might be a delay, these things work themselves out. How many times have we seen somebody and, and uh, heard the conversation now they're a first ballot Hall of Famer because that's different than the guy that's going to have to wait his turn to finally get in. I think he, through all of the controversy in the annual discussion we have about this issue, the one thing you think is, well, at some point, this issue will get worked out. What we got today was not just that they're not in. It's that through the traditional means, they won't be in. And that's a, that's a much different, like, hey, this guy's not in the Hall this year is much different than the realization that this guy's never getting into the Hall of Fame. Like, that's a totally different conversation. And I don't know why we've gone 10 years without baseball finding a way. Like, it, it seems to me like the sport would sit down and figure out what's a smart way that we can ensure that we honor people that need to be honored in this chapter while also telling the full context of what went on during this chapter of baseball. It shouldn't be that difficult. Agreed. And obviously, I have very strong feelings about cheaters. Obviously, I have very strong feelings about what Schilling has said publicly about transgender people, about Muslims, about women, about the voters, about everything. He is an unsavory character. There is something very unpalatable about the, the, the associations we have with each of these players who have been denied. But the answer is not simply to begin to judge in an entirely different way in recent years than the history of the hall dictated. And so there are a couple longtime pariahs, the, the Shoeless Joe Jacksons and Pete Roses, who for the length of time, a long, a long time, have been kept out. But there are plenty of others that share similar offenses to the current guys being shut out who have enjoyed Hall of Fame existence and who just lived in a different time. Now, that's not to say that we don't take into account our current sentiments about things, but I think what Jeff Passan talked about on ESPN Daily with Pablo so well is the idea that we understand 
the foibles of the voting process. There might not be a better voting process, but when we know how much just liking a guy and him being nice and him being a fun person can affect your opinion on what you claim to be that third rail of not getting someone in, which is PEDs, when we understand that that is a flaw in the process, this makes this even less easy to digest. That's what he said in anticipation of what we saw happen, which is Ortiz in, Bonds and Clemens out. I think it speaks, by the way, to his brilliance to the process. Which I think we have, right? Do we see. have that now? So I think David Ortiz, over time, built up this goodwill that shows that in baseball writers' heads, they can be malleable about the PED issue. The egregiousness of not including Bonds and Clemens because they denied it more vociferously than David Ortiz, who still, by the way, to this day does deny it. It, it has continued to and has not abated from that. I, I just yes, he does. I, I've never understood how the difference between a denial and a firmer denial is the difference between a Hall of Famer and someone who's not worthy of induction. That's it. That's right. It's a brilliant point by him, and he's right. Like it, it doesn't make it right. I just don't know what solves all of this. Well, I still think the Hall of Asterisk is the way to go, but we'll get into that later because I think Jeff also <laughs> wrote a really proper plaque if Barry Bonds were to go in that would sum it all up nice. So we're going to dive deeper into the Hall of Fame announcement in about 20 minutes, but coming up, someone who won a Super Bowl with Sean Payton, going to stop by. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast. Sean Payton stepping away from the Saints. Uh, not entirely a surprise, but... A massive shakeup for a team that just recently saw Drew Brees leave and now feels like they're sort of starting all over. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80 to shed a little light on this decision. Former Saints wide receiver, Saints Hall of Famer, and Super Bowl champ Lance Moore. Lance, let's just start with your initial reaction to making it official, to hearing that Sean Payton is stepping away. You know what, when the reports first started coming out yesterday, I was kind of thinking, okay, maybe this is a leverage move by Sean to potentially get the organization to kind of go all in for a quarterback, keep the organization in rebuild, or excuse me, out of rebuild and into win now mode. Um, but, you know, obviously the more time that I thought about it, 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 it makes sense. Um, you know, he's obviously a coach that's been there for a long time. 16 years is a long time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to kind of start out, uh, the way that he did, you know, basically an organization that was coming from a catastrophic season with Hurricane Katrina all the way back in 2005 to his takeover and, and basically creating what is now the New Orleans Saints, obviously him along with Mickey Loomis and Drew Brees. Um, it makes sense to me. I mean, there, there's been a lot that's happened in the last 16 years. Um, and I've been saying it all day today that you, you cannot put a price on somebody's mental health. And I, and I think that's a situation where he was just tired and he needed a break and he needed to um, take some time to get some clarity, to figure out kind of, you know, what he wants and needs. And um, look, the, the, the game of football is not going to pass Sean by. I mean, I, I think that he'll kind of get what he needs in the next year or two. Um, and, and, and I think at some point we will see him back coaching in the National Football League. So, Lance, one of the things he did to the point that you made is turned around an organization that hadn't had a lot of success. Every fan base out there constantly looks at their next hire and says, this guy's going to turn it around. How did Sean Payton change the culture and create a winning culture in New Orleans? 
Yeah, well, I mean, he did just that. I mean, you know, the Saints were considered the Aints for a long time in their history. They had Mm -hmm. one playoff win before Sean got there. Um, And, and I, I, you know, I think he's the perfect guy for the job, you know, that that he was the perfect hire. He had never been a head coach before, but had probably one of the best football mentors um, in in Bill Parcells to kind of help him figure out how he wanted to do things. But Sean really took the bull by the horns. I mean, he was a a really no-nonsense guy um, day one. I mean, it's amazing to see how much he's kind of evolved into the player's coach that dances in the locker room. But um, he really – it was a culture thing. And and for sure, with him, it was kind of about weeding guys out and seeing which guys kind of fit exactly what he wanted in that locker room. Um, And, you know, high-character guys, very intelligent guys, guys that love football, obviously guys that could play. Um, but, but he figured it out really quickly with, you know, obviously us going to the NFC championship game in his first year in 06 and then winning the Super Bowl a couple of years later that you, you've got to have great men in that locker room to, in order to do something special. And I'm sure every coach that's won a Super Bowl would agree with that. And he got that early. Lance Moore, former Saints wide receiver and Hall of Famer for the Saints with us here on Spain and Fitz talking Sean Payton. I know what he achieved there was to turn an entire franchise around, to win a Super Bowl. He won't be buying drinks in New Orleans anytime soon. But let's say a year from now, he feels rested and he feels ready and he pops up as head coach of the Cowboys. Is there any part of you or that fan base that begrudges him for leaving when things got tough, when Drew Brees was gone and popping up elsewhere and having the energy to do it somewhere else? You know what? I, I mean, I won a Super Bowl with Coach Payton, so I'm not going to be one of those guys that's like, oh, my gosh, you know, you're coaching somewhere else. Or you're coaching with the, the hated Cowboys. I mean, it's it's his life. Um, and, and really, I mean, he's he's still got three years on his contract. So if and when he comes back, it, if he doesn't want to coach for the Saints and the Saints are happy with the coach that they have, there's going to be some compensation coming back. So I'm I'm happy with that as well. You know, whatever makes him happy, that in turn I, I would imagine would make me happy because it's like he's done exactly what he was asked to do as, as the coach of the New Orleans Saints to turn an organization around, to bring hope back to, a, to an area that hadn't had a whole lot of hope, um, specifically dealing with the, you know, the, the travesty of, of Katrina. Um, he brought a Super Bowl to New Orleans. I mean, like, look, you, you, it's, it's, there's never really the perfect time to do something, but for right. him – kind of taking this time now when everybody still loves him. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it could be more perfect. You mentioned all of the positive, and certainly that's what today is about. There's also some controversy in his past, as we all remember Bounty Gate and everything that came with that. So when you look at the legacy overall, how much does any portion of that factor into the conversation we should have about Sean Payton long term? I don't think it factors too much into it at all. Um, honestly, I mean, if you're 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 um, going to judge his entire career on a, a situation where he basically became the fall guy, and I understand the head coach um, is the guy that's in charge of everything that's going on essentially in that organization, um, but uh, you're talking about a different time then um, in, in 2009 than you are in football these days, and um, you know it got labeled bounty gate. Um, and without going too far in depth uh, about what all that was all about, uh, I just I just think it's it's unfortunate that that situation turned into what it turned into. Um, you know, I, I think his uh, suspension was was not warranted. I don't think 
he should have gotten a whole season at least. I mean, give him a couple games and let him get back to work. But um, look, man, he's done too many great things to uh, allow that one situation to kind of put an asterisk on his name or, or prevent him potentially from, from making it into the NFL Hall of Fame. I mean, he is a Hall of Fame coach, a winner, a guy that's motivated and given plenty of men opportunities to, to be great out there. And um, shoot, I mean, I think he's, he's one of the best that we've seen. Lance, about two minutes left here, and we're talking to Lance Moore, Super Bowl champ, Saints Hall of Famer. What did Sean Payton mean to you personally coming undrafted out of Toledo? You know what? It, like That, to me, is even cooler um, than all the accolades that he's gotten as a Super Bowl-winning coach and coach of the year and you know one of the highest-paid co- uh, coaches in, in the National Football League is, is that he really – I, obviously, I learned quickly because I was in that you know group that was in the first year of, as as head coach with him that he really didn't care where you came from or how you got there. Um, all he cared about was that you were able to show up and do what they asked you to do. And for me, as an undrafted guy that was basically a holdover from from Coach Hazlitt the year before, was dang this guy doesn't care, even though they they were drafting guys. There were two receivers drafted in 2006 and then 2007, we drafted Robert Meacham in the first round. So uh, just knowing that I would could potentially have an opportunity and making sure that I was ready for that opportunity because this coach believes in me and he's keeping me here for a reason, man, that, that means the world to me. And I know for a fact, my career isn't what it is without Sean Payton and not just that, but the new Orleans saints organization isn't what it is today without him. From an undrafted player to top 10 in most offensive categories with the Saints, a Saints Hall of Famer and a Super Bowl champ, not too shabby. Hey, Lance, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Lance. Thank you, guys. Lance Moore, former Saint, telling us all about Sean Payton. And Fitz, a lot of folks who played for and coached alongside him have plenty to say about Coach Payton today. And I do think the fact that the Saints had only seven winning seasons, were 3-13 and in 05, um, coming off of the damage to the Superdome, all of that, and to bring them to the prominence that they've had of late, um, can't be understated. There's a whole generation of Saints fans that didn't have to suffer through all of what, right. what like what I grew up perceiving Saint, the Saints as. So, and that's largely because of Sean Payton. Huge credit to him. He gives us all hope that we're going to be able to stop wearing bags on our heads. And I mean, obviously the Bears have had success way back when, but I think folks who are are feeling like the Aints sometimes maybe hope to one day be the Saints. Buster Olney going to join us next to talk more Hall of Fame. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. It's time for some Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Sometimes you know you're going to get the straight talk that you need, and that's what we're about to get from our friend, ESPN Major League Baseball insider Buster Olney. Buster, let's start with the obvious. I want your reaction as we now know that David Ortiz uh, is the only person that is into the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame today. Yeah, if I still voted uh, for the Hall of Fame, then I absolutely would have voted for David Ortiz. Slam dunk Hall of Famer, impact offensive player. Once Edgar Martinez you know, was uh, voted in the Hall of Fame and it set the precedence that DHs can get in, you knew that David Ortiz would if uh, he was able to hurdle over that question about that 2009 New York Times report about him uh, you know, not passing the 2003 test. 
Um, and he was able to do that. And look, he's uh, one of the most beloved figures in baseball, uh, incredibly respected by the other players. I talked to Alex Rodriguez yesterday, and he was talking about David's acumen and his understanding. Uh, and that's something that uh, I, I think is uh, going to be a big part of his resume, one of the great postseason hitters of all time. And the center of that, of course, 2004, during that uh, historic comeback against the Yankees, getting those walk-off hits. Uh, I, I thought Jeff Passan did a fantastic job talking about this on ESPN Daily today and said something that most are arguing is the case here, that Ortiz, despite the PED issues, gets in because he is well-liked and because everybody enjoyed him as a as a person and a player, and that Bonds and Clemens, whether it's just PEDs or the you know teenage Mindy McCready stuff or otherwise or not being nice to media, that their biggest sin in the eyes of the voters wasn't just their association with PEDs, but not being likable enough. Does that feel like that is the reason that Ortiz slides in and they don't? Yeah, uh, there's no doubt about it. And, and think about the slippery slope uh, that a lot of the writers have gone down now, uh, hiding behind that character clause uh, that really was obsolete before the 2006 voting, the first year McGuire was on the ballot. And, and think about this, too. The character clause was written, it's believed, by Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the former commissioner, who was a segregationist, okay? That's mm. the hill that mm. a lot of the writers have decided that they're going to uh, stand on. And, and, and it feels like such subject, subjective justice because you guys know, if you talk to anybody in the sport, they already know there are guys who've gotten in the Hall of Fame who took steroids. It doesn't take a rocket scientist, but yet what I feel like that this group of writers, you know, 35, 40% have effectively done uh, is, you know, attempt to uh, apply retroactive morality and, when they really should have been focused on context and the context of that era, the steroid era that uh, Bonds and Clemens played in, the sport was saturated with it right. because of inattentiveness up and down the line. And to merely apply, you know, for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens to be the only guys effectively to get nailed on this thing and Mark McGuire, a small handful, is absurd. And it takes a lot of logic pretzels for some of the writers to get to that point where they can say, you know what, I'm going to vote for this player, but I'm not voting for Sammy Sosa. I'm voting for this player, but I'm not going to vote for Barry Bonds. It's ridiculous, and I don't think history is going to treat him well. So, Buster, what's a realistic solution that could fix all of this and still let those athletes have their stories told by the Hall? Well, unfortunately, I don't think it can be fixed now because once Clemens and Bonds go off the, you know, off the ballot, um, even if they get honored by a special committee, the, the precedent is now in place for a lot of the voters to say, I'm not voting for this guy if they're, you know, if, if uh, I believe that they're linked to steroids in any way or whatever rationale they come up with. Um, I really wish that they had simply followed the path of Major League Baseball and the Hall of Fame. Look, as far as MLB is concerned, Bonds, Clemens, Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, they are members in good standing. You know, even Alex and Manny, who served PD suspensions, they worked for teams after they served their time. The Hall of Fame put those guys on the ballot, and they didn't do that with Pete Rose, who got a lifetime ban. And so rather than simply say, you know what, we're just going to put the best players in, you had this group of writers who wanted to play, you know, steroid police. Uh, and, and that's how we get to today. The two of the greatest players of all time are not in the Hall of Fame. 
merely because they're the best, because they got the most scrutiny, while other guys who've already been honored took PEDs. Buster Olney, ESPN MLB insider with us on Spain and Fitz. Yeah, it's like you were the very best at this thing, so we paid more attention to you doing it while cheating, while everybody else that was cheating sort of like gets ushered in, and so did the commissioners that were overseeing the game while it was ripe rife with steroids. I think also, you know, I'm curious, you talk about the Today's Game committee, and it feels like they might, you know, get in via that. Does that feel like a different entry to you? Does it affect it years down the line if we look back and they get in because of the today's game committee? Is that good enough? Uh, no, it's not. And it's never going to be good enough. We're never going to get this, uh, you know, this situation back. Um, and, and to extend what you were saying, you know, but Zila gets into the Hall of Fame. Uh, writers who covered this era, who did a lousy job in illuminating this entire situation, including myself, uh, there are guys who cut and voted in from this era. It, it's, it's and made a lot of money, by the way, me. while we all enjoyed them hitting all those home runs <laughs> right. and being successful. Well, and, and it, right. Made a career exactly. of following the players. <laughs> yeah, you're right, sir. Are the Cubs and the Cardinals giving their money back? Right. Because, uh, you know, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, it's... The, or the, the reporters the, who the, covered them. And, and benefited from people caring about baseball and them getting big salaries from the newspapers and places that they wrote for. Exactly. And I would say this, too, you know, to answer your question about, you know, the committee, I do think these guys will get in. I definitely have sensed the softening among current Hall of Famers because some of them are being, uh, you know, honest with themselves. I, I've seen quotes, and I don't have in front of me from Johnny Bench, for example, where he's spoken with us in perspective before Bob Gibson passed away. He said out loud, you know, can I can I say for sure that I wouldn't have done steroids? No, I can't say that. And I think a lot of the players uh, are going to have more perspective than what we've seen, uh, you know, shown by this group of writers. Buster, how should they change the voting now? Like, who should have a vote in all of this? Well, first and foremost, and I, as I mentioned, I stopped voting seven years ago. A, I thought the Hall of Fame was angling its uh, the voting rules uh, against the steroid era players with Bonds and Clements in particular. But B, I was feeling really uncomfortable with the idea that I was making news rather than reporting on it. And, and if hmm. I, you know, I've been asked this by other writers. I'm like, you should get out of doing that. I wish the baseball writers would get out of doing that um, entirely. I don't expect that's going to happen. I do wish the baseball writers would go to the Hall of Fame and say, if we're going to continue participating as a group of journalists, we're going to insist on total transparency. If you don't give us that, we're not going to be involved. I don't expect that to happen. Uh, whatever system they come up with is going to be imperfect, whether it's to have the Hall of Famers vote or players vote or some special uh, select committee of you know, media members and players, some combination. You're never going to come up with a perfect system. And I fear, and I spoke with a you know, baseball executive in last week who said they really feel like that the Hall of Fame is losing its luster because of all these conversations that go on every year. Yeah, absolutely. Buster Olney is with us, ESPN MLB insider, reacting to David Ortiz making baseball's Hall of Fame bonds and Clemens among those shut out in their final vote. Buster, I do have to say, over the years, I have been one who has been talked into uh, agreeing that it's a travesty that they are not in this museum telling the story of baseball. I always believe that they should be, but there is a part of me that is a stickler for rules and cheating and still felt like there had to be some acknowledgement that that had taken place. Do you agree that if they were voted in, that there still should be a, a hall of, of 
PEDs or just an asterisk or something that acknowledges that they were tainted by this era but still great? Or do you think they just go in and we don't mention it because who knows who else did what? Sarah, I completely agree with you. I must have written six or seven years ago that if there's uh, established information, put it on the plaque. Yeah. Uh, You know, if there's, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, Mark McGuire, you know, uh, Big Mac, you know, set the single season home run record. I'm, I'm, you know, riffing as I'm imagining writing the plaque now, Uh, you know, 70 home runs in 1998 admitted using steroids. Just put it on the plaque. And the people who can decide what that means can be the patrons, yeah. the fans of baseball. Right. Let them decide. And for the writers, just vote the best players in and let the patrons decide, based on the information they know about the players, what it all means. Okay, we're out of time. So now I have to ask you really quickly, though, 30 seconds or less, when it comes to someone like Schilling, do you want to put something on there about his character? And, or do you want to maybe not have a ceremony because it feels so unsavory? Now, well, it definitely feels unsavory, but at the same time, I, I do think that when it comes to voters voting, that they need to vote on, on the playing career. And I'm not going to – I find the character clause to be so absurd and the idea that any of us can be in a position of judgment on it that I, I wish that that wasn't a factor at all. Yeah, it makes it really difficult across different Hall of Fames, too, that some argue that it's just about results and some don't. And and maybe you just let people feel the way they feel about bad dudes who were good at sports. I I don't know. Maybe that's how you have to do it. Buster, amazing insight. Thanks for the time. Thanks, guys. Buster only giving you the straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Coming up, huge news for my Bears. I'll react to it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You know what? I don't have a second favorite NFL team. I want to just squish any, because, you know, people were asking me about the Titans last week, and I'm like, look, y'all, I do not have a second favorite NFL team. I don't have enough room in my heart to handle more angst. Like, the Raiders take up everything for me. But I do root for my friends to have great experiences. And today, Sarah, it feels like maybe, like, I don't want to overhype things. I don't want to take things and blow them up into being too good of a thing. But I don't know. It kind of feels like with the reports at this point that the Bears are going to be naming Ryan Poles as their next GM. Poles uh, has been in the Kansas City Chiefs organization uh, and that he's coming over to Chicago. And it feels like this is an overwhelming home run. Like all of the great minds that I respect keep saying, oh, my God, the Bears nailed this one. You have got to be on cloud nine. You know what I am? And I will say that as a Bears fan, I know better than to just be optimistic without first saying cautiously. In fact, listening to a lot of Chicago sports radio all day, everybody felt the need to couch their positive feelings with like, oh, but he might be gone in three years. Or, yeah, but the Bears will find some way to screw it up. Or, ah, the Bears will ruin his his great ability that he showed elsewhere. And, like, that's where we're at right now, which is too bad. But it's just been the last decade or so has been gunked up by so many different coaches and GMs and not a lot of success and little tastes of success that have, have kept you a little hopeful, but always aware that, that things could go horribly wrong any minute. And what we've heard about Ryan Poles from, like you said, very trusted people, you know, Scott Pioli, who hired him with the Chiefs, telling me I should be over the moon. Field Yates, who got hired around the same time with the Chiefs after knowing him from BC, um, 
just raving on Waddle and Sylvie about what a fantastic guy he is, what a talent he is. This is the guy that people see, despite his young age, mid-30s, as smart, a good communicator, really good knowledge of the offensive line and the and the positions along the line. That's the position he played. He actually was briefly signed by the Bears uh, training camp sign after he tore his Achilles in college and, and didn't make that NFL leap, didn't get drafted the way he had hoped uh, eventually when it didn't work out as a player, went over to, to the uh, development side. Um, everybody seems to be really in, in inspired by him. And the good news is, Fitz, that when it was first announced that he was coming in, there were some real concerns about how much autonomy he would get, understanding that George McCaskey believes himself to still have this important role as a talent decider or as the final straw of who you go talk to while simultaneously publicly saying, I'm just a fan, right? Arguing that despite seven decades in football, he has essentially learned nothing. And when it's appropriate and fitting for him, he'll say he's, he's the last man to talk to about everything. But when he wants to shirk responsibility, he'll say, I'm just a fan, not a football guy. So there was a lot of concern that polls would come in and because it was his first chance at a GM job, he would be willing to take the job even if he wasn't given the kind of decision making that he should be but it's coming out now that he's going to get to make the decision about the coach that they hire they've already had first interviews with a number of folks um uh, Quinn and Eberflus and and Caldwell and now he will be there for their second interviews and get to make a decision and he has a couple connections to some of them um and, and I, I again I agree with you. I'm excited that everyone's so positive about it, but a lot of people were positive about Ryan Pace coming from the Saints and everything over there, too. So only time will tell. Yeah, well, I think part of this, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, part of this comes down to what we can go on. Because sometimes evaluating offensive linemen are difficult for most of us because we have no idea what a guard's really supposed to be right. doing, and it's hard to we, see. We call right? Gojo. Like, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Evaluating front office personnel can be at times equally difficult. But I was asked on a, a phoner today with one radio station, you know, what do you look for? What can you look for? And for me personally, I think not, not knowing who has the final say is fine, but you have to look at the organization, organization they come from and their success, particularly with the draft. Yep. And according to Pro Football Focus, by the way, they before last year's draft, they went to a four-year analysis. No team is drafted better than the Kansas City Chiefs. I've done these draft broadcasts every year with Field Yates, and he constantly talks about how the Chiefs in the first three to four rounds of the draft don't miss. And the reason they can turn around and pay tons of money to people is because they draft so well that yep. they're constantly restocking cheap labor. So when That's I look how they at fix it, an offensive line in one season by going out and getting them in free agency where other teams can't. Right, so if you're telling me that the Bears have gone into that particular area to look for somebody to get to run their organization, that makes sense. You're talking about the executive director of player personnel on an organization that doesn't miss in the draft, so he has a lot of experience being around it, on an organization that really doesn't have a ton of swing and misses even in free mm -hmm. agency. Like, the, the Chiefs are a well-constructed roster. Why would you not want somebody coming over from a well-constructed roster? So I love the fact that they get somebody that has this resume. I also love the fact that they have been patient and they are now going to let him have the opportunity to pick that coach. I think that's the right way to do all of it. Now you can say, hey, I don't know. None of us know if it's going to work, but we at least can look at the process like a math problem in high school. You show your work and you say, hey, I don't know if I'm getting the right answer, but I went through all the steps and did them all the right way.
It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're reacting to Ryan Poles being named the GM. Uh, well, I don't know if it's official, but it's 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 done uh, of the Bears, and now they have to find a coach. I think worth noting as well. You mentioned obviously the Chiefs have had tremendous success, but that he has worked his way up there, and regardless of who's been in charge, he has been retained. So he was a player personnel assistant, college scouting administrator and coordinator, director of college scouting, assistant director of player personnel, executive director of player personnel. He has moved up throughout his time with the Chiefs his 13 years with the Chiefs, and he's been under three different GMs and three different head coaches. There is a lot of turnover when front office and coaching changes are made. So for someone to be in the mix in each of those positions and each one of those people to come in and say, oh, I want to keep this guy on staff and elevate him is a fantastic sign. Well, and at some point, while we don't know so much, we have to look at organizations and say, why are, Why is this person being hired? And when you're coming from an organization that's had tremendous success and you're coming from an organization that feels like they're doing things the right way, it becomes much easier to justify the entire process of the hire. I feel really good about this uh, for you. By the way, tune into the ESPN Daily Podcast, bringing you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcasts it is everybody should feel encouraged Sarah the the most heartbreaking thing I think you can experience as a fan in any sport is the moment when your team hires a GM or a coach and the immediate reaction tells everybody hey this was a terrible hire right. we never know right. but if you can't have joy today it becomes more and more difficult mm -hmm. to actually find sustainable joy so I look at this whole process and say through all of the crapshoot if your organization has hired uh, somebody smart to run it, and we all believe that there is a quarterback there worth developing, how can you not start to at least peek through the curtains and see a little bit of ray of sunshine through yeah. all of it? Yeah, you got to get the coach right. That's for sure. I, I also would say the second worst, besides them hiring someone and being sad the day one, is uh, when someone, uh, your coach gets fired and they immediately become the top candidate for other jobs. And you're like, wait a minute, what do we do wrong here? And yes, of course, I'm talking <laughs> about the Dolphins and Floors. Like, that's a bad feeling, too. Like, wait. Why are they the top candidate if we just got rid of them? What are we doing? Yeah, it says something when your candidate, your former coach is the top candidate or when your former coach can't get an interview anywhere and you're like, right, okay, that too. maybe we've had the wrong guy in the building for a long time. It's a, it's a weird cycle because so many jobs are still open and they've been closed or slow to close them, but I actually love that. They're being diligent. Coming up, what the hire means for the Bears, what's next for the Saint, well, Saints, lots to get to. We'll do it with an expert <laughs> next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM. Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and it has been a wild day of news across the sports landscape. We'll get back into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame uh, decisions in a little bit, but we start this hour focused on all of the NFL news coming down because I think it was a surprise to some today to hear after a couple of days of speculation that Sean Payton is no longer going to be the head coach of the New Orleans Saints. He's taking some time away just to relax and figure out what's going to happen next. So we're going to get some insights. Uh, no, we're just going to actually talk about that. Uh, there we go. I, I I don't know what we're doing, Sarah. My computer's locked up. Can't figure anything out. We're just going to well, be Charles live Robinson's on Well, Charles Robinson's going to talk some NFL Thank with us. You. How do you feel about that? I feel I feel great about it, and I would love <laughs> to talk to Charles. Charles, always uh, always great to talk to you. I'm going to pretend that I have technology. That was like a reverse working. Ron Burgundy. 
You know, it was I, like look, there's nothing to read. To I, tell I you thought, what was going on. I, I thought we were going to Charles, and then I was like, I don't know, and I can't get anything to open up. So we're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna wing it, Charles. This is live radio at its finest. Uh, don't give me your reaction to your intro because it was not pretty. But give me your reaction <laughs> to the news today that Sean Payton is stepping away. Uh, you know, it's I'll tell you what. This is one of those things that for so many off seasons. I have heard Sean Payton's name come up in a potential departure from the Saints that you, after a while you just stopped believing it. And, and after the Cowboys had bowed out of the playoffs, I was talking to somebody in the organization, and he's like, I hate to even bring the name up, but – and I'm like, don't say Sean Payton. Like, Please don't say Sean Payton. And, and you know, he, he brought – he said, yeah. He said, you know, we're hearing that Sean – you know, there's a chance that Sean – you know, wants to get away from the Saints, you know, and, and not, not in like a negative way, but needed a break. And, um, you know, I kind of brushed it off. I'm like, okay, this is, here we go with this pipe dream again. I, I thought, um, you know, you could see in week eight, after week 18, um, he, he just talked about the toll that the season had taken. And, um, you know, I think at one point, you know, he kind of made the remark that it just felt like, you know, years since the beginning of, of the season. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's a lot of transition that's going to happen there. There's a lot of salary cap um, ramifications that have to be dealt with now. A quarterback, uh, they have to figure out a way to resolve quarterback. It feels like a, a rebuild is about to start there. And I would say that if there was going to be a transition that he was going to make, um, this would be the time to do it. I do believe him, though, when he says that he, he prefers to maybe take a year off and survey the landscape. But I will say everybody who's close to Sean, says the same thing this guy changes his mind a lot I just can't see it after that press conference well I also think he is so expensive right now that that compensation for him might go down a little after another year or so um but he's he's locked up with the Saints so if somebody wants him including the Cowboys they're gonna have to empty their piggy bank and that's something the Cowboys like to do uh Charles Robinson is with us here Yahoo Sports senior NFL reporter on Spain and Fitz your vast experience in this business, and I, I wouldn't begin to guess that you had done any actual research on the pairing of a kind of GM by virtue of age or expertise with a kind of coach, but knowing that Ryan Poles is the new GM for the Bears, does that make you feel more inclined to see an elder statesman like a Caldwell or a Quinn, someone getting a first shot? Um, what is, is there a formula that works well across the league? Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know a, a ton about polls, to be honest with you. I haven't, I haven't ever spent any time with him personally. You know, I've, I've gone into organization at times and, you know, he, he's a name that has come up as being, you know, a, a bright guy who's ahead of the curve, but uh, in terms of what he would prefer um, or what the organization would prefer uh, to pair him with, I mean, it makes some sense uh, for for a veteran head coach. Someone actually, you know, reached out to me today and said, "Hey, do you think there's any chance that this is the the enemy, Eric the enemy landing spot?" And I just, man, I I think it's a really hard sell to bring in another another you know Kansas City offensive coordinator mm-hmm. into into that mm-hmm. city. I, I think they, you know, the the Bears would like to to have an established um, commodity. I look, I know inside the franchise, um, Matt Eberflus the the defensive coordinator of the Colts, they think a lot of them. But they also thought a lot of, um, you know, Brian Flores as well. But I think part of the, the problem with Flores was um, just how much of uh, the control and, and, you know, 
uh, I guess some of the decision-making power would have, would have really had to have been streamlined through Flores. Um, you know, I think they want more of a, more of an even partnership. Now we'll see. I mean, this is um, now it should really begin to take shape in terms of, you know, who the, who the right fit is for him. I, I can only say that Iberflus was a name that, that I heard pretty consistently up until a couple of days ago. Um, you know, Dennis Allen obviously was coming in for, for an interview and that got put on ice so that they could, you know, close this out. And now, and now I actually think Dennis is very much the front runner um, in New Orleans for, for you know, Sean's replacement. But um, it's going to be an important, obviously, hire for the Bears. And, and I, uh, everything I've been told is it's very much a Fields, as you would assume, it's very much right. a Fields hire. Like, nobody can come in who has any question about Fields. If there's any reticence, that head coach isn't getting the job. Talking to Yahoo seniors, uh, sports senior NFL reporter Charles Robinson, Spain and Fitz there, Spain Jason Fitz. So it feels, and, and, and you tell me, maybe I'm wrong, it feels like the hiring cycle has gone very deliberately and slowly for everybody in this process. Why? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, that's a good question, too, because there are a lot of teams that have been serious about going through the paces with established coaches and you would think um that those are probably the easier interviews to read and and there's a number of individuals you know doug peterson jim caldwell um who you know you could secure interviews with pretty quickly and um you would think that if teams are serious about hiring established head coaches it would move a little more quickly than it has i i don't know if part of it is the fact that some some of this is that they're gm tandems that have to be considered um, in this process, I don't know if part of it is that, you know, Mike Mayock going out in Vegas, um, opened that job up in a way that, that maybe it hadn't been open before. I think some people are sort of waiting to see what happens with, with Jim Harbaugh, because, you know, look, the, the Raiders are a job that, um, is, is really, really attractive to a multitude of coaches out there. Um, and then I think, you know, frankly, some of the general managers that are running their searches are being really deliberate. I'll give you one, George Payton. I mean, the, the, Broncos are interviewing everybody under the sun. Um, George has been very deliberate about this. And it's interesting because I had heard early on, like, hey, Dan Quinn, Dan Quinn, everybody's telling me it's going to be Dan. And, you know, Dan got out of there, went on other interviews. And if it was going to be Dan, I, I kind of felt like, hey, they would have moved on that a little more quickly than they have. So, you know, I, I think it's it's a number of, of different factors that have kind of played into it, both known and unknown commodities. Uh, quickly, because we're running out of time here, minute or less. We were talking last night um, to Kevin Clark at the Ringer about his story about Mahomes versus Allen, and that we shouldn't necessarily presume it's the next Brady and Manning because there are a number of young, great quarterbacks that might be in the yeah. conversation, and the league just feels different. Does it feel that way to you, or are we getting a little too hyped on maybe the Burroughs and the Herberts and, and not recognizing that they might not turn into the, the gold that we're seeing with Mahomes and Allen? Yeah, I mean, you know, let's let's wait and see. I mean, Joe Burrow is, I mean, he looks unbelievable right now. I mean, he looks like he's ready to step in. I mean, look look at the top six quarterbacks in the AFC. If you don't have your quarterback in the AFC, you're dealing with Mahomes, Allen, Burrow, uh, Lamar Jackson, uh, Mac Jones. Who am I leaving out? There's somebody Josh important Allen. I'm leaving yeah. on that list. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it does feel to me like um, – a lot is up in the air in terms of, you know, where all these guys are, are going to end up on the spectrum. But um, I, I also think to counter that it, it does definitely feel like we've now seen the transition from that golden era of quarterbacks. Like it's Tom and Aaron are kind of at the back end of that big 
class that kind of spanned about 15 years of record setters. And, and now we're moving on to, I, I just thought that Allen Mahomes game was the showcase. I'm like, okay, that's it right there. That's it. That's what you're going to have to deal with for the next 10 years. And if you're in the AFC or you in the NFC and say, I'm going to win a Super Bowl, you better be drafting to compete with those two guys because they're going to be there a heck of a lot. That's that's I'd be stunned if that wasn't the case. Charles, always appreciate your expertise and your insight. I'll get the intro better next time, my friend. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. It's all good. I appreciate it. Take care, guys. Charles Robinson, Yahoo Sports Senior NFL Reporter, ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance, protecting small businesses with specialized coverages for commercial vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Coming up, how would the Barry Bonds plaque read if he ever got into Cooperstown? We'll tell you next, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app at Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, presented by Progressive Insurance. I do love this song. I'm not going to lie. This is a spectacular it's a great song. song. It is, it is a, some it of is, the best. It is a, one of the worst songs in terms of people ruining it with bad karaoke. But oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. It's a song you want to bust out. You're just not going to do it very well. It is. It is. You are a thousand percent right. Like in almost every city, when you hear it in karaoke, it's terrible. And then you go to Nashville and oh, yeah, everybody that spot. sings it sounds yeah. like they should get a record deal. All right. <laughs> yeah. So it's been a big day for Major League Baseball and – there's a lot of conversation about who didn't get into the Hall, but I don't want to get it lost that the, somebody did. David Ortiz got into the Hall of Fame. And a really special moment here to hear the moment he got the call. This is what it sounded like as Ortiz found out he's a Hall of Famer. Hello, I'm trying to reach David Ortiz, please. This is David Ortiz. Hello, David. This is uh, Jack O'Connell with the Baseball Writers Association of America. I'm calling you from Cooperstown, New York. But you know that the baseball writers have elected you to the National Baseball Hall. Yes! <laughs> really incredible moment for every player. I don't care what the sport is. When you see the moment that guys find out that they've made the Hall of Fame, yeah. it is such a powerful, emotional moment that shows all of the passion a lifetime of work can bring. Yeah, absolutely. And on the other side of it, you've got... You know, Schilling last year basically saying, take me off the ballot, uh, the, the histrionics that have become so, so, so much a norm for him. And also um, Roger Clemens, who about an hour ago put out a statement. Hey, y'all, I figured I'd give y'all a statement since it's that time of year again. My family and I put the Hall of Fame in the rearview mirror 10 years ago. I didn't play baseball to get into the Hall of Fame. I played to make a generational difference in the lives of my family, then focus on winning championships while giving back to my community and the fans as well. It was my passion. I gave it all I had the right way for my family and for the fans who supported me. I'm grateful for that support. I'd like to thank those who took the time to look at the facts and vote for me. Hopefully everyone can now close this book and keep their eyes forward, focusing on what's really important in life, all love. He and Bonds, and Chilling for that matter, have had a long time to think about not getting the votes and, you know, there, the debate has raged, but as we just talked to Buster only about not long ago, it feels like the wave of opinion has very vastly changed in defense of those folks belonging, despite many arguing that, you know, you have to acknowledge what, what they did. You have to write it on their plaques and put it in, in, in the hall, but that it's not truly a museum about the history of baseball if it doesn't feature some of the greatest who ever played it. Yeah, I don't know how you tell the story of this chapter of Major League Baseball without any of these names. And that's, I mean, I understand that there is, you know, there are a couple of objectives for any Hall of Fame. And you want to reward and honor the greatest that played, right? And and I understand anybody that says, well, we want people to play the game the right, fine, if that's what you want. But I don't know how you 
don't tell the story of this entire chapter of Major League Baseball, which is what it feels like is happening. Like at some point, even if the Hall has to put in, uh, to your point, a Hall asterisk, something that comes in and says, hey, we're going to acknowledge this. It has to be done. Otherwise, it feels like there's a massive gap in history. Well, and it's been so arbitrary, and that's what everybody points to. There are people of terrible character, accused of terrible crimes that exist in it. There are people who admittedly drank and had amphetamines before every game in an earlier era that was riddled with performance-enhancing use. Then there's an entire generation of PED users, none of whom were as good using PEDs as the Bonds and the Clemens and the Ortizes of the world, and therefore were not as criticized for the use of it, even though we knew very well that they were using. The commissioners who were overseeing it are in the Hall of Fame. The writers who chose not to shine a light on it and instead were paid great sums of money to cover the exciting home run battles and, and earned a living covering the excitement of baseball are now putting on a different hat in order to criticize. And that is not me saying, forget about it, who cares who cheats? But I think Jeff Passan, in a really great column that he wrote today that everyone should go read, summed up perfectly that we can acknowledge what we all knew and saw and heard about the players while still also recognizing their role in the history of baseball. This is what he told Pablo Torre at ESPN Daily about how he would write Barry Bonds' plaque if he finally got in. What these plaques that are hanging on the walls do is allow you to tell the story of baseball. And in this column I wrote, I, I wrote a fake plaque for Barry Bonds. And this, I promise you, is in the style of what the rest of the hall plaques look like. They don't use pronouns. I don't know why. Barry Lamar Bonds, Pittsburgh NL, San Francisco NL, 1986 to 2007. Baseball's home run king with 762 won seven MVP awards and walked more than any player in history. With fearsome left-handed swings, set single-season home run record with 73, and redefined hitting for a generation. Use of performance-enhancing drugs muddled accomplishments and epitomized MLB's steroid era. Hero and villain simultaneously possessed uncommon power-speed combination made even better by eye that helped lead NL in on-base percentage 10 times. Barry Bonds cheated, and he wasn't very friendly, and he also was unbelievably ridiculous. Those statistics are out of control. Incredible. The guy would get walked with the bases loaded. That's how fearsome he was. And yet we're going to decide that he and a few others of all people should be the ones kept out, despite knowing that there are others in the hall who have done the same. I guess to me, Spain and Fitz, by the way, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, it, it context is everything and that's one of the things we we battle constantly when we talk about historical performances for different athletes when we sit here and try and compare Dan Marino to current quarterbacks context of what the game was like right, right. then mattered right and so we can have smart and nuanced conversations about context constantly when we look at different chapters of sports we do it all the time when we talk about the evolution of the game I don't understand why we can't also assign context to this conversation about what happened why it happened how it happened how this overtook all of Major League Baseball in that moment and how you know we're still trying to figure out who did who didn't what it means and and how it impacted different players so without that full amount of knowledge I I feel like baseball could actually embrace this whole chapter 
and embrace this chapter in their history, much like we do as with American history. You look back at moments that you regret and say, hey, I want to I want to teach this so we can learn from this and acknowledge it. Like, I don't understand why baseball can't simply do that and say, hey, this is part of our past. We're not proud of, but we're going to get better through it. And we're also going to acknowledge greatness that came from. You know, the voters are humans. And I think we've seen in the recent years that we steadfastly ad- adhere to an opinion that we have until it becomes our identity. And when it feels like our identity, it feels so much stronger than merely an opinion. And that can take place when it comes to politics or vaccines or anything else. And so I believe there are a number of people who have decided for themselves, my identity is someone who would never vote for bonds. And even as the wave of opinion has changed, and even as they maybe feel differently and are even malleable enough to vote in someone like Ortiz despite his PED issues. They have already decided for themselves that this is what leg they stand on. This is the the hill that they'll die on. And that might be why they cannot see a world in which he's in there, even if you acknowledge the issues, even if you put it on his plaque. They've just already decided, and they can't be moved. Yeah, that's the problem, though, that it should nothing should be that written in stone as you go through the process. you got to continue to evolve your thinking on it and try and find solutions. All right, speaking of finding solutions, tons of issues to solve in the NBA. We'll do it with one of our favorite experts next, Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Thrilled to have Wendy back, Brian Windhorse. It has been too long since we had you on the show, and we have a lot to get to. Let's start with one topic that no one has been talking about all season long. What's wrong with the Lakers? Are they even going to make the playoffs? You know, here's the thing. Um, their schedule, and this week is especially difficult. It's one of their most difficult of the season, the next tonight, and then they have the 76ers Thursday. Um, their schedule is much tougher in the back half of the year. Why is that? It's the same reason you haven't talked to me for a while, because <laughs> the premier games on television in the NBA come after football season. So that means the big games against the Lakers, against the tough teams, most of them come after the Super Bowl. Guess what's coming up? The Super Bowl. So (laughs) their schedule was extremely favorable. Uh, Depending on which service you look at, they've still played the easiest schedule in the league to this point. And they're a game under 500 uh, and in danger of going more on this trip. And so they could play a lot better. And they're getting Anthony Davis back. And that naturally should make them better. But they have blown an opportunity to create a cushion in the first half of their schedule. And that is going to make the second half a lot real challenging for them. So, Wendy, what fixes it? Well, they made a big step last week when they decided to not play Russell Westbrook at the end of a close game. And I think when you look at it objectively – most of the time, I think that's the smart way to go. And I expect them to continue to do that going forward. That's not to say that West Rook won't play in some tight games, but I think having the ability to do that gives them a chance to win some 50-50 games. I just think I, I, the reality is he's not the best player to have out there. And the second thing is I think they need to improve their defense. They actually were starting to play – Pretty good defense in early to mid-December. They were terrible for the first month. Then they started to get going. And then uh, COVID hit them and Anthony Davis sprained his knee. And so let's see if they can recover some of that momentum now that he's coming back. 
Brian Windhorst is with us talking NBA. You mentioned they've got the Nets coming up. That's another interesting story, not just because of everything around Kyrie Irving, but Harden and what we're hearing about his not really being happy there, that he's going to he's gonna probably look into free agency. Do you think this is likely the last run for the Nets with the big three? I think it's hard to say, but I actually don't think it's like some sort of breaking news because James Harden had the chance to sign a three-year, $150 million. I'm going to say that one more time. Three-year, $150 million extension in the fall, and he did not sign it. And at that time, it was very clear that he intended to be likely to be a free agent next summer. So the Nets, were, their eyes were wide open on this for the entire season. And they were dealing with Kyrie and then some other issues and now a Durant injury, so it's never been on the front burner. But it was a re- it's a real concern. Guess who else can be a free agent next summer? Kyrie Irving. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nets at one time, I think, were interested in extending him. But then he, you know, can't play half their games, and how can they have a realistic conversation about an extension when he's only playing half of the game? So – um, that there's a possibility that both of those guys, I mean, just let's just be honest, if you're an unrestricted free agent, there's a possibility that that could, that could happen. The other thing is the Sixers haven't done anything with Ben Simmons. And if they don't do anything with them until the trade deadline, the possibility of that being a trade in the summer, I think, becomes more realistic. Stick there for a second. We're talking to Brian Wittenhorst, ESPN NBA insider extraordinaire, Spade and Fitz. You mentioned nothing's happened with Ben Simmons. Uh, we've been talking about it all year. Do you anticipate anything will happen at this point? Daryl Morey gave a radio interview, I think it was last Thursday, in Philadelphia. It was one of the most bizarre. I mean, I don't want to criticize it because I like when uh, team presidents give on-the-record interviews, so I don't want them to not do them. But <laughs> it was one of the most bizarre in-season interviews I've ever heard. He I mean, it was kind of said a thousand different things, which leads me to believe that most of what he was saying was um, just a smokescreen. But it kind of is a window into what it's like to negotiate with him. He was kind of all over the place. And in talking to teams over the course of this time, you know, they've had trade conversations with people and teams come away from them and say, I don't think they're even really serious about doing a trade. They're just doing an exercise here. And so, you know, Daryl was saying, well, the list of guys we are looking at has gone from 30 to 40. I mean, what does that statement even mean? So I think at the end of the day, you want to boil it all off. You want to get down to the bottom line, brass tacks, whatever you want to call it. He doesn't have a trade he likes. He didn't have a trade he liked in August. He didn't have one in November. He doesn't have one in January. And I don't know if he's going to have one in February. And if he doesn't have a trade he likes, and the owner, it's not just about him or Joel Embiid, but the owner, Josh Harris, is willing to continue to be in the luxury tax for a team that's in fifth place, then I could see him holding on to him. And that's just the reality here. I don't see a trade he likes. Every team has made a dozen offers. He's said no to all of them. It's one giant hamster wheel, and it's been frustrating for everybody, trust me. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Brian Windhorse about all things NBA. Speaking of frustrating, 
Uh, Grayson Allen. Now, I'm not going to go to extremes and say that he should be suspended for as long as Caruso will be out, even though my heart says that that's what I would want. But I am curious for your take as to why the Bucks felt the need to make a statement and to go out of their way to disagree with the suspension. It's not that I think that they're going to implicate their own guy, but you could just as easily say nothing or say you're looking forward to having him back. Why did they take the time to defend what it felt like to everyone but them was a clear act that deserved a suspension? I agree. And also because it's not like you're defending your superstar player. Right. You know, like sometimes if your superstar does something, you have to come out and defend them, you know, even if it doesn't make any sense. But, you know, Grayson Allen is just a role player. Um, You know, the funny thing is, the Bucks were in this situation where there, you know, there's drama in Philly, there's drama in Brooklyn, there's drama in LA. Um, you know, it's injuries other places. The Bucks were having this drama-free season. They were, I mean, they had some injuries in COVID and all that stuff, but they're just going along. The, the defending champs, looking like the best team in the East, looking great. And then this happened, and then they, you know, they fan the flame a little bit. So. It was a little out of character. There had to be a reason that they did it, and maybe that reason will come out. But, Sarah, I felt the exact same way you did. Like, when I got the statement, I kind of scratched my head and said, why did they do this? And, yeah. you know, the, the thing about it is um, the, the, the Chicago Bulls are dramatically affected by that play. But I can't prove, and neither can the NBA and neither could the best lawyer in the country, I can't prove intent. I can't prove he intended to hurt him. Um, and the league, and the league um, I think, had to, had to that come to the same conclusion, as difficult as that is with his history. Do you think the Bulls retaliate when they have their rematch? I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, first off, I think in general, when you look at the Bulls, their class organization, you, I mean, who's going to level the hit? I don't, I don't see right. on the team who's going right. to do that. And I didn't like how people said that they weren't going to win anything or they were soft for not retaliating. You have been in and out of injuries and COVID and everything else, and you're struggling to stay on top because of people being in and out. You're going to risk losing your own player to suspension or injury or otherwise just so you can – and also Grayson was ejected. You're going to beat up someone else on the Bucks to make up for it? It just it didn't make sense to me. No. It, basketball doesn't always operate like that. I mean, there's a handful of times where you – Give a, give a strong pick or a hard foul or something like that. I mean, you know, if somebody hard fouled Grayson Allen, I, I could see someone hard fouling Grayson Allen just for the heck of it. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, that's you could say that a lot of, about a lot of Duke players over the years. But um, I'm just having fun there. But, yeah, it's not the <laughs> no, nature no, no, of the game. I you agree. know, the thing is, yeah. guys, I don't believe, and this is not something I'm reporting. I'm just saying this a personal. I don't believe that the NBA would have suspended him at all had he not had Caruso not had a broken wrist. And I know this because the Bucks played a game the next day and Grayson Allen played in it. They, it wasn't until they realized, oh, my gosh, this guy's had surgery. We got, it actually is not a good look for the NBA. And on a deeper level, somebody in my job can say, well, they didn't replace Kiki Vandeweghe, who was sort of the czar of discipline. They just sort of had somebody else absorb his job, which sort of tells you how worried they are about on-court discipline. It's been scaled way back under Adam Silver. But long story short, the the league took a look at it the first time and said flagrant two ejection is an appropriate foul. It wasn't until after he played another game that they suspended him after the, the Caruso report came out of the surgery. 
Hey, Brian, we're out of time. So 30 seconds or less, I just want to quickly ask you, do you think the Knicks have just regressed to a mean that they would have been at last year if not for some luck? Or do you think that somebody is to blame for their step back? You know, um, they were not as good as they were last year, and they're not this bad this year is sort of the, mm. the easiest way I can say it. Yeah. Um, I do think that they're – one thing I think is very interesting to watch with the Knicks, they went out and traded – when I say they, the front office went out and traded for Cam Reddish to try to inject something into this team. And it, going into the game tonight, he's played five minutes so far, I think. So Tibbs is basically saying, I don't care who you traded for. I'm not playing them right now. Right. So I would just keep an eye on that situation. But I watched them play, finish the game Saturday, on Monday night against the Cavs, and the execution level in the last two minutes of that game for the Knicks was nowhere near where they were a year ago, and there's about ten reasons why. Awesome stuff, Wendy. Got to get you on more often. Now, you know, football's almost over. We'll get you back to talk more NBA. Appreciate your time. Appreciate you, Wendy. But not over yet. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Big day as we reacted to the news of the Hall of Fame. David Ortiz in, Bonds and Clemens out. Um, lots of conversation sure to continue, and especially with those guys likely to be on the Today's Game ballot in December. Um, but as we were waiting for the news on that, uh, we got confirmation that Sean Payton is out, uh, and the Saints now have to look to a future without Drew Brees, without Sean Payton. Lots of questions. Uh, and Fitz, I think one of the things that had people talking most was what Sean Payton said during his presser today about his future, which isn't as simple as I'm tired, I'm retiring, see y'all later. I don't like the word retirement. Mr. B didn't like it either. He always said, you know, retirement's overrated. We get sold this whole image of retirement by these investment groups on TV and golf courses and retirement. And, and so I still have a vision for, for doing things in football. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, that might be coaching again at some point. I don't think it's this year. I think maybe in the future, but that's not where my heart is right now. It's not at all. Yeah, I mean, Fitz, that seems like he's just setting everybody up for the inevitable, which is, I already think I'm coming back. I maybe even know where, and all those rumors about the Cowboys might be right. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be difficult. If you're a Saints fan right now, you're sort of in, in inside, you're negotiating how you feel about the fact right. that Sean Payton is no longer going to be your head coach. But also, it's got to sting a little bit to hear because you know that this organization is teetering on the edge of a massive rebuild. And now it's not teetering anymore. Like, you have no idea. Anybody that says they know what to expect from New Orleans right now is out of their mind because there's no proof of concept anywhere across the board as to how they're going to go about business, what they're going to do next. So if you're a Saints fan, you hear this and you think, man, well, if you just need a year to to recharge, like, uh, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if you you just want to step away to go coach somewhere else, like, that doesn't feel great from a fan's aspect to hear that. Yeah, and even if he's earned the right to do what he wants, he brought them great success, it doesn't mean that they won't be a little salty if he looks around and says, ooh, we're not good anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else now that Breeze is gone. (laughs) Now that I've committed all this money to Taysom Hill, my number one guy, he's like Taysom Hill's top sponsor, uh, and then he's going to peace out and leave that money for the Saints to figure out. Jameis Winston could be a guy that other teams are interested in. So, yeah, you're right. There's not a lot that's set in stone. 
let's get to Mike Triplett, who was on Canty and Golick Jr. quickly. And he talked about a couple things that are now looming for the Saints to have to figure out. Let's just say, for instance, they will do a full coaching search and they will consider all options, a, a fresh voice, an overhaul of the coaching staff, obviously. But this coaching staff just did, you know, a pretty good job, actually, when, when you consider, you know, the hurricane evacuation, losing Drew Brees and all the players they did. That defense was phenomenal. I think Dennis Allen will be a top candidate. The offense has been really good for a long time under Pete Carmichael. They've got some really good assistants in Chris Richard and Ryan Nielsen, among others. I think there would be some desire to keep this staff together, uh, whether that means a different head coach and keeping some assistance or, or, or just promoting someone like Dennis Allen. And then if they do that, obviously quarterback becomes the number one priority. And they have some options. They could, like I said, go for Russell Wilson uh, or a big splashy move. Or two free agents they're very familiar with, and Jameis Winston and Teddy Bridgewater, who's back on the market, that wouldn't cost as much to acquire. But th- those are obviously the two top priorities. Hmm. But none of that is an easy solution. Like, nope. you're not telling me. None of that replaces the known entity of Drew Brees, and nothing they're going to do is going to replace the known entity of Sean Payton. Like, Dennis Allen has all sorts of love right now uh, for head coaching considerations for a lot of good reasons, and many coaches need a second shot. But let's not pretend that his first shot was particularly successful with the Raiders, right? Like, so they're, they're, even when you look at these, these moments of, of hope and you say, well, this is what we're going to build on, there's just a lot of, okay, that could work out. Right. That's a far different feeling than what Saints fans have walked in. And the Saints organization has walked into every year feeling like, you know what, it's okay because we have a Hall of Fame coach and a Hall yep. of Fame quarterback, and that means everything's fine. We're going to make something out of what we got that's going to be better than most people would be able to make out of it. And they felt pretty good for a long time. What's going to be bad is not only – uh-oh, we're in a rebuild. We don't know if we've got a good coach, a good quarterback, anything else. But also if a year from now the Cowboys decide that we're willing to pay the giant sum to get Sean out of his contract, he's got three years remaining with the Saints, remember, to bring him here and coach the Cowboys. Ryan Clark talked about that on Canteen Gold Jr. You know, when you hear Stephen Jones say he fully expects Mike McCarthy to be their coach next year, that makes sense to me. Uh, if Sean Payton sits out an entire year, I cannot see them not at least doing everything they can, opening up the bank account to get Sean Payton to be the next head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. And it's an attractive job. Uh, Diana Rossini said he's felt disrespected a little some because his team or his organization didn't necessarily have the juice uh, that it needed in certain situations. And when I hear that, I often think that, man, that Dallas Cowboy job is probably seem, seeming prettier and prettier because we know that a young Drew Brees isn't walking through the front door of the New Orleans Saints facility anytime soon. And we also know, as somebody else said, that Jerry Jones ain't buying green bananas. He needs to win <laughs> now, which means he's going to be willing to spend on – he he, he's planting trees he ain't gonna climb if you know what i'm saying so uh to steal a brett denon lyric uh so he's gonna put the money in now to be good soon they've already got a quarterback he's gonna be willing to pay for peyton and he's gonna be willing to buy whatever pieces that team needs now again very exciting if you're a cowboys fan and you don't want to suffer through more than maybe one more year of, of mccarthy very sad if you're a Saints fan who's not only looking at a rebuild, but also is going to look across the way and see him wearing Cowboys gear. Yeah, I mean, and and look, I, that's particularly a, a kick to the no-no places if it happens right away. But even if there's a year gap in all of this, 
I don't know that that makes everybody sort of swallow any easier in the process. Yeah. It, it is going to be interesting to see how all of this changes any dynamic for coaches that may be sort of teetering in that spot. Like if you're an organization like the Cowboys that are sitting there saying, well, maybe we just give McCarthy another year because we'll make a serious run at Sean Payton next year. Like I wonder if that becomes part of the mindset to even being patient where you might otherwise not be. And are they maybe already having those conversations? Do we know if they've already talked to Sean Payton just to see if he might be interested if they were to hang on to McCarthy for a year instead of ending that relationship and going out and finding a new coach and then doing it all over again when Sean's available? Yeah, but seeing the Cowboys write your favorite team a check won't make it feel any better that he's no longer your favorite team's coach. very true. It's Spain and Fitz. Thanks for listening to our Tuesday show. We always joke and sometimes uh, have a little fun at the expense of the Freddie and Fitzsimmons show saying that they're going to have guests that they're not having. But we really mean it this time. Rob Gronkowski, Freddie and Fitzsimmons, 930 Eastern. Also, Tom Brady and Bruce Aaron. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.